I, I was reading an article this week uh, that seeks to pretty much refute everything I'm teaching. So, uh, yeah. So I just there's a quote in here. I wanted to I wanted to read it to you guys just so that we can um, interact with it. Where is it? Oh, no, not Pete Henson. Huh? Besides the quote on the phone, you can't. The, the what now? I, I am not, I have, a, I have an irrational fear of technology, K-Dub. <laughs> you should know that about me. Uh, I don't know how to search anything on a, anything. Okay, so let's see here. I, I'm almost coming to it, I know it. On an iPhone, you can do it on an iPhone? Okay, oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I just, I just wanted to start out with this. I showed this to Pastor Lynn because uh, I've been, you know, I've been immersed in covenant theology uh, and reading all these different theologians on covenant theology. And I thought, you know, from time to time in this class, uh, I will take shots, as it were, um, at people that don't agree with covenant theology. Probably more than anybody would be dispensational theology, right? So they would kind of reject. The notion, I would say, dispensational theology, but at the same time, also New Covenant theology uh, is also a theological camp that rejects uh, the first three covenants that we talk about, or that I at least talk about, in terms of the covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. They do not believe uh, that talking about those uh, arrangements in Scripture or those uh, realities in, in covenantal terms is accurate. Okay, so. And then um, <clears throat> I wanted to also interact with dispensationalism because, uh, just to be fair, um, they they also do the same thing. They it's interesting that they have in common with uh, New Covenant theology a rejection of those three covenants as well. Uh, I just wanted to read this. This is by John Feinberg. John Feinberg was really big back in the seventies, eighties. Um, he was uh, he was uh, uh, one of the leading. Uh, dispensational theologians. I think he taught at Talbot Theological Seminary uh, and Biola, and uh, he was John MacArthur's mentor. Uh, but this is what he, he says. He says, non-dispensational systems, that is covenant theology, stress that... Uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me just tell us what this is about real quick. He's basically saying that uh, if you use a redemptive historical hermeneutic, then your utilization of typology is flawed that the way that you're using typology is unbiblical and, uh, and hermeneutically in error. Okay, so this is what he says. He says, non-dispensational systems, and then it says, that is covenant theology, stresses, stress that the type is a shadow and the antitype is reality. Therefore, the meaning of the antitype supersedes and cancels the meaning of the type in its own context. Dispensationalists do not think types necessarily are shadows, so listen to what he just said there. Dispensationalists do not think types are necessarily shadows, and they demand that both type and anti-type be given their due meanings in their own context while maintaining a typological relationship to one another. So uh, what he just, uh, what I would, my, if I was like in a formal debate with Dr. Feinberg, which I would never do, because um, he's too smart, but what I would say is that I, what I would say is that you just made a non-statement. Uh, you just said that our understanding of typology is flawed, but then you did not 
define what typology is. All that you said was that the types have a typological relationship to one another. You haven't still explained the dynamics of that relationship, right? And so when he says here, you know, that, um, you know, when he says that, that the type is a shadow and the antitype is a reality, turn to Hebrews chapter, uh, oh, I don't know, we can just go to Hebrews chapter 8, I guess. Where do we get, you know, this language from, right? Is, of course, we don't get this language on our own, and this is not, these aren't terminology that we made up, this is not us just kind of picking and choosing, right? But this is this is all over uh, Scripture, you know. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's see, where did I tell you to turn? Hebrews chapter 8? Uh, maybe a more explicit one, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. So right there, I mean, you have the author of Hebrews using two very important words, shadow and form. Uh, what does the ESV say? It says shadow and form? Shadow and form. Okay, anybody else has anything other than form? It says what? True form? Okay, that's, that's a little bit, yeah. See, that's, a tra- that's, that's definitely an interpretation of that word, right? It's interesting, that Greek word there is, if you look at, maybe some of you have a footnote in your column, it's a cone, which just literally means image, like where we get the word image of God. So what do you mean? So it's almost like it sounds like he's saying a shadow to a shadow, right? Like from one image to another image, right? So therefore, sometimes a cone can have a different meaning, like something like substance, right, or true form or something like that, right? But definitely the author of Hebrews sees that the law, and when he says the law, what is he talking about? Ten Commandments? <laughs> right? When he says law here, what is he referring to? He's, yeah, he's referring to the entire Old Covenant, right? And he says that the whole Old Covenant was a shadow. So the whole Old Covenant is a shadow of what? The good things to come which is obviously referring to what Christ did in the gospel. And that it's a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form or substance or the reality of those things. And so this language that we use of type and shadows, it comes directly from Scripture. The other problem is when Dr. Feinberg says that we do not, um, that we do not, what does he say? He says that we the meaning of the antitype supersedes and, listen to the, the language closely here, it cancels the meaning of the type in its own context. Uh, that's very important to him because what he's saying is that through Reformed theology and through typology, what we're doing is we're saying that the original type uh, in its own context no longer has that original meaning that it has. Here's, here's a very slight, uh, a slight difference between what, the way that he would understand a redemptive historical hermeneutic in the way that I would understand it, according to theologians in the Reformed faith, what they, what they would say is, no, we're not, we're not superseding the original meaning, we're discovering the original meaning, in a sense. The New Testament is helping us to understand what is known as the per se reading of Scripture in the Old Testament, which basically means we're understanding the inherent meaning in the Old Testament text. We are not. See, what he's accusing us of is what uh, some... Uh, liberal theologians that started in the Reformed community and then left the Reformed, really 
I would say they left because they became so liberal, but people like Pete Enns from Westminster, California, he ended up, uh, in his hermeneutics, he ended up saying, and you've heard me talk about this before, but he ended up saying that what the apostles did is they basically reread the Old Testament and basically assigned new meaning to the Old Testament, like a foreign meaning to the Old Testament. Uh, he uses words like they reimagined, they recast the meaning of the Old Testament. You see what's going on there? So what he's saying is that the, 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 the apostles basically saw the life and ministry of Jesus, the reality of what he did, and then they turned around and looked at the Old Testament again in a fresh, in a, in a new way and said, you know what, we can stick this meaning in this place in the Old Testament, even though it's not there originally. And so that's what he's scared of. That's, that's what he's warning against, is we can't cancel the original meaning of the type, right? Uh, but we don't do that. Of course not. That's why that's redemptive historical hermeneutics takes into account the original situation that's going on there historically among the people of God and what that signifies and what that meant. And so what did they hear and what was that all about, right? But we also know that Scripture teaches us repeatedly that there is sufficient warrant to view certain things in the Old Testament as having a redemptive historical fulfillment, meaning that they point to something greater than themselves. Um, so you can think about that with everything. I mean, just the, the, the example of what Hebrews just did right now, talking about the law, that the law was just a shadow and, and uh, that the reality was coming, right? All of that. So uh, that's important because... Um, we are not at all in our utilization of typology. And you guys see me draw the little triangle up here, right, and follow Voss's uh, understanding of typology. When we do that, we are not at all undermining the historical type. As a matter of fact, what we're saying is that this is what the historical type is actually saying from the beginning. This is the inherent meaning of that type, you see? And so you get... um, you get scriptures that, 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 that reveal that to us time and time again. So I can give you example after example after example of where New Testament authors uh, explain to us the inherent meaning of the historical type uh, and, and being what, uh, what it is. And as, and as a matter of fact, uh, the Old Testament itself does this. Uh, the Old Testament itself takes a, a, a historical situation and then... Uh, then uses it typologically to fulfill a different historical situation. Um, I'm thinking of, for example, the Exodus. You know, when the children of Israel were taken out of of Egypt, right? Hosea tells us that that was actually a typological event signifying a future redemption for the people of God. And so he quotes Exodus chapter 4. He quotes that again in uh, uh, Hosea chapter uh, 11, verse 1. Right, so it's just interesting because it's like, uh, you know, if you go back and read Exodus chapter four and read the whole book of Exodus, you wouldn't think, oh, this is referring to Israel getting ready to go into captivity in captivity with Assyria. You would never conclude that from the book of Exodus, but Hosea is saying, yes, this is a picture of the way that God redeems His people throughout time, right? Until we reach the climax, the greatest Exodus of all which is why the New Testament authors quote the same passage out of Hosea 11. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, quotes Hosea 11, 1, that goes back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. That's incredible. And that's the way it works all throughout Scripture, all the time. So all we're saying is that we're just following the way that uh, biblical hermeneutics itself works, right? Yes, sir. 
What, what's that? How does what you just explained about what Hosea did mm-hmm. differ from what you were saying about is it Feinberg or Feinberg? Yeah, Feinberg. What's the difference? Though? There's some subtle difference there. Um, Yeah, what, I mean, the only thing that Feinberg is saying is that, so basically Feinberg would approach the prophet Hosea and would say that if you're using that Old Testament text like that, right, then you're not appreciating the original context of that verse, right? And Hosea, what Hosea, I think, would say, if I can just play Hosea for a second, I think what Hosea would turn to Dr. Feinberg and say, no, Dr. Feinberg, but when Moses wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he spoke, he spoke of a future captivity and a future redemption, right, that we are now living out in the time uh, of, of Assyria. Because if you look, if you just read the book of Hosea, repeatedly, God is warning the people about Egypt again. So it's almost like it's been, I mean, I don't know how many years, right, but it's been like thousand years after, maybe more, 1,500 years after the Exodus. And yet, you know, like Hosea is repeating the same warnings of the Exodus to a new generation. So it must be that the event of the Exodus functions in a typological fashion, pointing to something greater than itself, which, of course, it does. You know, that's why Matthew quotes the same passage as Hosea. <laughs> it's amazing. You know what I mean? But And so I just thought I'd interact with that a little bit. I don't know. I just thought it'd be maybe just to be fair to them a little bit. Yes, sir? I think this is different because there's a new covenant. And when he says a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. That's not talking, that's not talking about so much as, as much as, uh, about hermeneutics, as much it is, as it is talking about, uh, the economy in which God is operating with his people, right? So what he's saying there is simply that by virtue of the coming of the new covenant, that in it of itself is sufficient is a sufficient basis for us to understand that God has moved on from the old covenant. You see, because remember the argument in Hebrews is very simple. There's there's someone in Hebrews, right? There's some group of uh, whether they're Judaizers or whatever that are seducing Christians back to the old covenant ways, and that are 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 kind of wanting them to go back to the types and the shadows. Right when the author of Hebrews is saying, "Why would you go back when God Himself has moved on from that administration of working with His people?" So, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. But that opens up a whole other can of worms, you know. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Come to Israel with us. I'll explain it to you when we go. <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's a whole other. So there's a lot that separates us from like, let's say, dispensational hermeneutics, I would say less than New Covenant hermeneutics. So New Covenant theologians, uh, so who would be some prominent New Covenant theologians today? Probably the most prominent one would be D.A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson, uh, Doug Moo, um, Arturo Azurdia, one of my personal heroes of the faith, um, one of the best preachers I've ever heard, Art Azurdia. He would definitely be in line with New Covenant theology, 
Uh, lots of people. A lot of people over at the uh, Gospel Coalition would be New Covenant Theology. They're, they're a mixed bag, though. Uh, they fight all the time on the blogs, you know, uh, among themselves regarding that, you know what I mean? But New Covenant Theology at least would agree with us about the redemptive historical hermeneutic, and they too would disagree with dispensational, uh, with the dispensational approach. Yes, sir? So I was just curious, uh, that professor that you read just right now, mm-hmm. Yeah. The Old Testament, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, what does he do with that? Well, I can't speak for him because in, in the sense of that I haven't heard him comment on that verse, but just generally I think what he would say is that the road to Emmaus is not giving us some sort of universal hermeneutic of the way that we interpret the Old Testament, right? Uh, I only say that because I think that's in keeping with what John MacArthur would say. And John MacArthur would definitely follow probably exactly where John Feinberg is at. He would just say that that, you know, if they, they would argue, if you look at that scripture carefully, what he's saying there is, you know, there are only some things that Christ fulfilled regarding the Old Testament, right? But that not the whole Old Testament is about Christ. And so it's like, I think in, unless we have a conversation about that, you know what I mean, about like what do they mean by that, right? Because I think when you dig down deep enough, a lot of times what, some of those comments are afraid of is like allegorization and over spiritualizing the text and things like that. So, you know, we would share those concerns, you know what I'm saying? But we would also say that I think what, what Jesus is giving us in Luke 24 is in fact a hermeneutic for the entire Bible, right? And that uh, the reason I say that is because he quotes, you know, he says that he revealed himself concerning concerning the things that, that are taught about him in the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, which is a classic Jewish way of referring to the entire Old Testament. You know what I mean? That's the way that they would summarize the entire Old Testament. It's not like Jesus saying, you know, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, except for, you know, the wisdom literature. <laughs> you know, I don't think Jesus is saying that. Obviously, Jesus knows that in the wisdom literature, you know, you can find Christology there as well. Especially, I mean, think of the book of Proverbs, probably in your mind right now. All these scriptures are coming to mind about how the wisdom literature refers to Christ. You know, things like that. So, shall we get to our lesson today? <laughs> I mean, did you guys appreciate that? I mean, just because I want you to hear just some of the things that are being said on the other side, just to be fair, because we don't agree, you know what I mean? Um, that doesn't mean at all that... Um, that we shouldn't be honest with those that disagree with us. So, and if you have questions like that, feel free to come and bring questions, write them down, you know, ask them either here in class or you can talk to me anytime you'd like. What, what's that? What can you say to him where this is un- unbiblical? Mm-hmm. Would we call the dispensational view unbiblical? Like, I think that's like, you know, escalation. <laughs> 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 that's like, uh, yeah, that's pretty confrontational, right? But it is what it is. Um, yes, I mean, by virtue of the fact that I would say covenant theology is right, I would say dispensationalism is wrong in a lot of its points. Like, you know, the, the separation between Israel and the church. I certainly think they've erred on that point, for sure. You know what I mean? Um, and, and even that has to be nuanced and carefully explained. And You know what I mean? Uh, he, once, I mean, I read this whole article. Uh, it's about 29 pages. I read this this whole article, and in there I was... Once I saw that he used the word replacement theology, 
I kind of lost respect for the article because replacement theology is kind of a, you know, poisoning of the well kind of ad hominem. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really a poor choice of words because, n- you know, no covenant theologian believes in replacement theology. Replacement theology is a caricature. You know what I mean? Oh, you think the church replaced Israel. You know, nothing of the sort is true. You know what I mean? It's a fundam- When you ask that question, you show that you have a fundamental misunderstanding of the relationship of, of Israel to God's people and to the elect. <laughs> you know what I mean? So any other questions regarding that as, before we move on? At least she didn't have a question. Yeah. Mm. And then it says, the stupid man cannot know, and the fool cannot understand this. Mm. And I just thought about, like, you know, sometimes we think, like, aren't we going through all this work? I, I do. Yeah, so what, right? Like G.K. Yeah, Beale's wife says, so what? And then it's like, I get convicted because God's thoughts are very deep, and it's like it glorifies him when we go deep, when, we, when we're trying to trace out his ways and think the thoughts after him. And, and, then, and then when it says, you know, the stupid man can't know, or the fool understands. By God's grace, right? <laughs> Praise God for his law. He makes wise the simple. So let's, <laughs> let's just kind of re- recap where we've been, you guys. Uh, everybody give Haley a round of applause for writing intelligible words on the board. Legible words on the board, right? <clears throat> Here I come with my graffiti, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're saying that what is the covenant of works the covenant of works is a is a covenantal arrangement it's a relationship it's a relationship between god and man whereby man was promised eternal life on the condition of obedience had he obeyed the simple command eat of any tree you want cultivate the land tend the garden but do not eat of the tree of good and evil right the knowledge of good and evil or you will die Right? Had he obeyed that simple command, then the covenant of works would have resulted in eternal life. What that signifies to us is that God is saying very, very clearly and emphatically from the very outset is that heaven must be earned. Heaven must be earned, right? Um, I know that kind of kind of shocks us a little bit because we're like, wait a minute, what happened to salvation through grace, right? Well, it must be earned by someone who has the, the, the capacity to earn it. And here's a question I have for you guys. Did Adam have the capacity to earn eternal life in the covenant of works? Yes or no? Don't think along God's decrees. Don't go, you guys are such Calvinists, man. You guys go straight to the eternal decree of God, you know, man. But, but, but Adam being who he was, did he have the ability to obey God's command? Yes or no? Yes, he was, he was created upright. He was created good. He was created, and, and many theologians would even say he was created righteous and holy, right? Along, along the plane of nature that God created him in. So his nature, being what it was, had the capacity to obey God. Adam, folks, Adam is not totally depraved. He's not in total depravity. 
He's not totally enable, right? Far from it. Adam is able. Uh, it, it, it would, and, and, and here's the thing is that, you know, many people have pointed out, like, it's still by grace if you think about it. Even if Adam obeyed God, God doesn't have to give him eternal life. He just says, okay, you've done what you should have done. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've done what your nature dictates, and you've done what you should be doing in my temple, in my garden, right? You should be doing this. I mean, you've done no more than, than, than what is expected of you. But God promised that he would live. And how do we know that that promise, going to the promise of eternal life, how do we know that God promised him that? Well, we looked at several arguments. Number one, we looked at the fact that... Um, that's eternal life by virtue of the tree of life, right? The fact that these two trees were there in proximity shows us what's at stake. There's a, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that produces death, and then there's the tree of life, and that produces life. And so what kind of death does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil produce? What kind of death? So kind of jumping ahead to the penalty, right? Uh, every kind of death, all the above. Um, uh, if you eat of the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you die spiritually, covenantally, physically, eternally, you will die. It was absolute, total condemnation. Um, and then therefore, conversely, the tree of life produces eternal life. Not just, just, not just another episode of temporal life on earth, right? It would produce eternal life. So what does that tell us about man's original existence in this world, if the tree of life gives you access to eternal life, then what kind of life did Adam have in the garden, right? What is eternal life? Let's, let's start there. Like, what is eternal life, huh? Without corruption. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of think, trying to air out what we know that eternal life is, right? It's everlasting. It's a life without corruption. No death. Here's a question I have for you, Landon. If you have eternal life, is there the possibility of death? That's right. So did Adam have eternal life at the outset? Of course not. Why? Because he died. No, well, but, also because, but also because he had the potential to die. If you have the potential to die, you don't have eternal life, Right? Where is eternal life lived? Careful here. Where do we live out eternal life? Anyone? Anyone? In Christ? Okay. She's thinking along the lines of, <laughs> like Trisha, Christ. Right? It's always the right answer. So in Christ, and what you're talking about, Gail, is something like a realized eschatology, uh, inaugurated eschatology, a positional righteousness, a positional eschatology, right? Where we have John chapter 17, verse 3, what is eternal life? This is eternal life. They know you, God, you know, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, right? So eternal life is, is, is there talking about a quality of life. It is, a, it is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that's eternal life. And everyone in this room who's in Christ has eternal life right here and now. In Frisco, Texas. But is eternal life going to always reside in Frisco, Texas? Where is it going to reside? Yes, sir. The new heavens and the new earth, right? That's ultimately where eternal life is headed. So where was Adam going to live his eternal life? 
What's that? He would have lived on in Eden forever? I think, I think, John, that, that the way that, I mean, now, of course, that we have, you know, the scriptures, and we know that God's eternal plan, and this is why the covenant of redemption is so important, because the covenant of redemption assures us that what God covenanted to his son was an everlasting kingdom, right? And that that everlasting kingdom is not here and now, but it is in a new heavens and in a new earth. So in other words, I think so. Because I think the new heavens and the new earth are not plan B, right? I think that they are, they are in keeping with God's original decree. So that's where the tension comes, and I think that's where the mystery of it comes. We have the knowledge of history, and we always look back. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right. Yeah, we look back at what happened, but what happened affects the future. And at that point, what happened affects the future. Even what you said, I have to challenge about Right. It's just like just because you could sin doesn't mean you couldn't live have lived a sinless life. Right. Why why does the fact that he could have died mean he didn't have eternal life? I don't think that It just seems it just seems as if he had yet to partake of the, the tree of life. Because it seems as if that had he partaken of the tree of life, then it would have resulted in the quality of eternal life from which he could never die. So the fact that he still has the propensity to die signifies he has yet to obtain real eternal life. If he, added, if he had obtained real eternal life, he would no longer have the potential to die, right? If you have eternal life, you cannot have the propensity to die. But Adam had the ability and the potential to die. Therefore, I think the best answer is that though Adam's life was good, though it was created upright, though he was in a paradise of God, Still, he was still in some sort of probation. He was in some sort of testing time. And that's what the command was all about. And that's what his duties were all about. Had he fulfilled his priestly duties? Had he obeyed God's command perfectly? That part, I don't know. At what time? How would that have looked? All I, th- I could sur- surmise is that at some point, God would have given him access to the tree of life, and he would have lived forever. Right, so I think, yes, sir, I, you've been holding your hand up for a while, so go ahead. I think, too, the way I kind of work out in my mind is what we see in Scripture, obviously, now, too, with the mortal, but on immortality, we'll have right. bodies that can truly live That's right. in eternal space. Yeah. And then what you see in the new heaven and the new earth replacing even this world now, it would have been the same again. The garden would have been replaced, I assume, by that new heaven and new earth. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, that's the way that I've always phrased it, is that, is that at some point had Adam passed the probationary period of time and he would have eaten of the tree of life, God would have glorified him. See, think of it this way. Adam was created good, but not glorified. And the reason why I would say he wasn't created glorified is because he had yet to be justified. What does the Bible say? Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. And so it must be, as theologians have pointed out, that during this probationary period of time, Adam's justification was at stake. 
And so that's why they're saying that on the basis of his perfect righteousness, had he passed probation, God would have confirmed him in that righteousness. I would go so far as to say as God would have given him the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he would have lived forever. But because he failed, he never obtained glorification. I think he was created good and perfect according to his nature, right, in, in, a, in a temporal world, but he was not created. Uh, so if we're, if we're using uh, the word perfect as, uh, you know, as, as par excellence, I would say no. But, and here's the other thing, the fact that he was created in God's image, the fact that he was created in God's image, I think also supports all of this, that by virtue of his ability to bear the image of God, Adam was already, in a sense, hardwired to be glorified, even though he was not yet glorified. I I think being created in God's image means that he was created for an eschatological reason. He was created for for the eschaton. He was created eschatologically, meaning that he was created to obtain more and more and more Christ-likeness, God-likeness. He was created in God's image, uh, this is what I would say now after studying a lot of Meredith Klein and um, other guys. Oh, I've been studying this Korean theologian who's so good, Jun Koo Jun. Don't laugh at my Korean. Okay, His name is Jun Koo Jun, and he's a brilliant. And one of the things that he says, the same thing, is that, is that by virtue of being created as an image bearer of God, what that shows us is that Adam should have eventually obtained to the eternal Sabbath of God. So it's almost like when God created Adam... And then the next day he rested. It's as if he was setting before Adam the highest state of life, which was to be in divine rest, something that Adam had yet to fully obtain. So I think, you know, Meredith Klein would go so far as to say that had God not fulfilled man's aspirations to attain to Sabbath rest, that the original creation would have been a curse, not a blessing, because man would still always long for what he was fully created for. It wasn't just to take care of a temporary garden, a temporal garden in this world. It was to live in everlasting sabbatical rest with God. Wow. And I think that's what he was created to do. Anybody else? Anything? Anyone? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. Yeah. So why is, etern- why is eternal life through Christ necessary? What gives it that necessity? What is the, what is the, what's, what's binding us to eternal life through Christ? Think about our classes. Anyone? Which one? Christ? <laughs> what, what, what covenant? The covenant of grace. Close. You just few, few covenants off. It's the covenant of redemption. If we agree to a, pre, listen now, if we agree to a pre-temporal covenant, meaning God made a covenant with his son in the realm of eternity prior to creation, then it must be that, you know, now we can talk about the decrees of God. It must be that in the decree of God, God had always ordained to save a, save a humanity, not through Adam, but through the second and last Adam, through Christ. 
right? Because what was covenanted to the Son was an eternal kingdom comprised of an innumerable multitude, right? In other words, a humanity. So who's that humanity, right? Um, who's that humanity, that picture? You know, I grew up around a lot of Jehovah Witness, my aunts and stuff like that, and all their paperwork was always, or their, um, what's their stuff, the Watchtower stuff. Have you guys seen that stuff, right? You pick up their little magazines or whatever, and they always show, like, this earth, and everyone's just, you know, Disneyland all day, right? <laughs> Everything's just perfect, and it's just this paradisical environment, you know, with khakis on, right? Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you ever think about that? Anyway, so there they are. Everybody's just having this beautiful, and it's just this beautiful humanity, right? This beautiful humanity in a paradisical environment. So it's almost like, Okay, so God had a humanity, he had a paradise in mind, he had a kingdom where this is the way that society would function, and the question is, is who was that humanity, and how were they going to obtain this kingdom? And what I'm saying is that from the annals of eternity, God had decreed that the way he would do it is through his eternal son, right? Not through Adam. So at some point, this is where theologians refer to the fall as a happy fall, Felix Kupa. Because the Felix Kupa means God had a prior purpose, a redemptive purpose that would even supersede the fall. Wow. You know what I mean? Yes, ma'am. We talk about uh, topics <clears throat> as if there was only one time. Mm-hmm. And the time before he sinned is a very short period of time. But I think we do well to analyze what could have happened. Yeah, I, I would say this. What could have happened if we're thinking about what... Well, he didn't need to be saved because he wasn't fallen, right? But he needed to be confirmed. Yeah, but he needed to be confirmed in righteousness. And what, what is, when we define righteousness, um, when we define righteousness biblically, what is righteousness? Well, according to the Bible, righteousness is the righteousness of God, right? And the righteousness of God is, o- is only going to come to you in, w- in one of two ways. Either you're, you yourself are going to earn it, or someone's going to earn it for you. So somehow Adam would have earned the righteousness of God, and then, and then what I would say is that he would have eaten of the tree of life, and then he would have passed on that quality of life to the rest of humanity. But he didn't. Of course. Yeah. But he didn't have... Yeah, that, and that's the key, is that I think, I think that because redemption is the eternal plan, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, maybe this will help, because uh, after you think along the lines of all of these, you know, especially in terms of the covenant of redemption, 
And then you think about redemptive history being sort of fleshed out or worked out. You know, passages like this that you guys know, you've read this before, but it just kind of maybe takes on a new dynamic, fresh insight here. Uh, If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 9, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention, according to his kind intention, which he pur- which he purposed in him. And so, first of all, what is the mystery of his will? Right, the mystery of his will is ultimately the mystery that has to do with the gospel. I mean, anytime you're talking about musterion, you're talking about, especially in the book of Ephesians, the mystery of his will uh, is not just talk. It's not just saying he's not just talking about his mysterious will, right? But the his will as it relates to the gospel. I mean, that's really the way that it's fleshed out. Then he says, according to the kind intention, and then he says, which he purposed in him. Who is him? Christ, right? Um, Which he purposed in him, watch this now, with a view to an administration. Uh, By the way, this is where dispensationalists like to really ground their thinking, is in that word right there, oikonomia, this word that... Uh, administration, which they want to take it as dispensation, right, or something like that. Um, but but anyway, with a view to an administration, so a, a time period or a or a or a situation in redemptive history that says is suitable to the fullness of times, which the fullness of times is an eschatological term that just refers to the the fact that the the, the prophetic time is coming about, right. Um, it's almost like um, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when, um, when uh, uh, the Lord says, you know, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So the fullness of time is an eschatological phrase that means that we've arrived to the end times. We've arrived to the last days. This is the fullness of times. And what is it? The summing up of all things in Christ things in heavens, and things on the earth. Watch this. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, that's the kingdom of God, having been predestined according, watch this now, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, what's interesting is that that word counsel is something like a, a, like a plan, uh, the Greek word there, uh, for counsel, speaks of God's sovereign plan. Uh, so this is a this is this is evidence to me that God is making known to us in the gospel that as the redemptive history progresses, that God is going to fulfill all things in heaven and on earth, everything in Christ, and that that is in keeping with His eternal counsel. You see, His eternal plan. That goes by, that goes back to pre-temporal times, prior to creation. After all, brothers and sisters, what did it say in verse four? Just as he chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. So even before the world was, our inheritance was already, in a sense, you know, predetermined. Um, maybe a correlating verse. Go to Ephesians chapter three, verse uh, Ephesians chapter three. I guess verse 8, to me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's the same thing as the mystery of his will. And because he says that. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God. 
who created all things, right? And so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And the, verse 11 is absolutely crucial. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is God's eternal purpose? To manifest his wisdom through the church of Jesus Christ, comprised of Jew and Gentile for all eternity in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Any, any questions about that? Yeah. Anyone? Okay, back to my notes, supposedly. So, yeah, so then, you know, we go from, so that's part of the promise of eternal life is we have all of these, um, I gave all these different arguments, you know, of why we can see that as a promise. The relationship to Adam and Christ, the sacramental tree of life, the symbol of life itself, the need for being confirmed in eternal life, all of these things. Also, we know that the tree of life was, pro- or that um, in the covenant of redemption, eternal life was at stake. We know that based on the, I would say also based on the, the, the two-age structure of Scripture, that the Scriptures are structured along a two-age system, this age and the age to come. And that Adam, in a sense, Adam is kind of like the first prototype of that, right? That he would go from the present age in which he was created and that he would enter a second age, the age of glorification, the age of partaking of the tree of life, the age of you know, perfect fellowship with God in a new heavens and a new earth, the age of sabbatical rest with God. Um, I think you can make a case for all of that. Uh, let's see here. I'm supposed to, I was supposed to finish all this today. I don't know if I'll do it. And then the probationary period of time, that's absolutely critical, absolutely important. And um, we, we know that based on Hosea, thank you, Haley, we know that based on Hosea, chapter 6, verse 7, we know that the, and you even did my dot. <laughs> I'm, this is great. This is like, you're, you're tracking with me here. I do a dot, I follow the Greek text in that. But anyway, so Hosea 6, 7 um, is, the, is the verse that, that introduces the idea that Adam was in covenant with God just like Israel was, right? And matter of fact, this dispens- let's come full circle. This dispensational argue, uh, article that I was reading there, he tries to handle uh, Hosea 6-7 and just makes a total garbled mess out of it. I can't even understand what he was saying um, in terms of like, okay, if it's not that simple, right, that Israel, like Adam, became a covenant breaker. Well, when was Adam a covenant breaker? It's very simple, the fall. It's not that hard. I mean, why we, you know, it's just you have a prejudice. You don't want to see the obvious, you know, kind of thing. And then, and during this probationary period of time, it is and it becomes analogous to the Mosaic law, Leviticus 8 5, that if you do the commandments, you will live. See, another reason why we have, you know, in the covenant of works, we have this potential for eternal life or for life is because of the the, the the relationship that we have with the Mosaic Covenant. So in the Mosaic Covenant, I will go, this is controversial, and maybe we'll talk about why later, but I, that I see the Mosaic Covenant kind of like a republication of the covenant of works, that Israel is in a sense like a corporate Adam that is put right back in that same situation where they have to obey for life, disobey for death. Same exact words are used for for the situation with Israel. So Leviticus 8.5, keep his commandments and you will live. 
You see? And then finally, the penalty. Well, we saw the penalty. The penalty is death. And the penalty of the covenant of works becomes the occasion for the need for a new covenant administration. Okay, so after Adam is under the penalty of the covenant of works, what should, what is God obligated to do? Huh? What is God obligated to do after Adam suffers the penalty of the covenant of works? What is he obligated to do? He's obligated to send his son? You're shaking your head, Wally. Why? He was not obligated to do anything. So then if he does something, what is the motive of, his, of him doing something? Grace. And so after the penalty comes, God's motive is grace. And so what comes after the covenant of works? The covenant of grace. A grace relationship with man. No longer a works relationship. I mean, think about the depths of the grace of God. Man is not even able to work for God anymore in the sense of, if, if, even if God said, okay, we'll start over, scratch, right? Covenant of works is gone. New covenant of works. I'll make it real simple this time. You know, stop breathing for five seconds or something, right? But by virtue of his penalty and by virtue of his fall, he's no longer able to obey any works that God gives him. Why? Because he's totally depraved now. He's, he's fallen. He's unable. He's incapable of obeying God out of his own will, his own nature. God has to act in sovereign grace. Um, and that's exactly what you have in the covenant of grace. So um, I don't know if we'll, we'll probably start the covenant of grace next week, Lord willing. But any last questions or comments? Yes, sir. Yeah, practically speaking, I mean, it's very simple, right? What does the covenant of works show us? We can't earn our salvation. And what, is, what, is, what does the covenant of grace show us as well? Heaven has to be earned by someone. Someone has to earn it. We can't. So if Adam, think of it, if Adam couldn't do it in a paradisical environment based on how God made him upright, there's no way in a billion years you or I will ever do it, right? So we need second Adam. We need another Adam. And so what do you find in the Bible? Over and over, a new Adam comes. New Adam. New Adam. Israel's a new Adam. Uh, uh, Abraham is like a new Adam. Noah's like a new Adam. New humanity comes out of Noah, right? Uh, all of these new Ad- David is like a new Adam. He's called the son of God, just like Adam was, you know, until we reach at last the son of God par excellence, who keeps the requirements of the covenant of works, the principle that's found here he keeps it, gives us eternal life. Hallelujah. We can take the tree of life now. We're set free. Praise God. Let's go home, everybody. <laughs> okay, let's, no, let's not go home. But let's go to worship.